Some of you may have noticed that it's a full moon night tonight. And in the Buddhist calendar, it was a lunar, is a lunar calendar. In the full moon night and the new moon nights, they're auspicious. They're called Upasata days. And in Buddhist countries, uh, it's often an opportunity for lay people to go to the monasteries and to hear the teachings and to recommit to the ethical conduct, taking the precepts, and hear the Dhamma. So you might get a sense that right now there's probably, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people on this full moon night doing something very similar to what we're doing today. And so there's a kind of a worldwide web or a kind of a field of Dharma people all orienting their hearts and minds towards the freeing of greed, of hatred, delusion. And we're part of that stream, we're part of that field, we're receiving it, we're contributing to it. So that's just a a brief reminder of what we're actually doing here over these two weeks. And this evening, I'd like to bring it back into the framework of the Four Noble Truths that we started with. So earlier on in the retreat, Willa gave us an overview of what these truths are, and we've been referring to them from time to time. Mostly so far, we've been focusing on the first three of these truths. So one, the truth very simply stated, there just is dukkha. Dukkha being unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. It's so deceptively simple, isn't it? (laughs) So simple, but in practice, not so easy to fully understand, to fully accept and come to know that dukkha just is a fact of life. It's a fact of being a human being. Once we can bring ourselves to, in a way, become more intimate with dukkha, instead of perhaps our more usual habits of avoiding and resisting and denying and ignoring it, then we come into the terrain of the second noble truth. We start to see the recognition, there's a cause for that dukkha, and that cause is craving and its various forms, clinging and holding on and resisting and identifying and taking things personally. And as we deeply see the extra pain that that way of relating to dukkha causes, we start to experience the third noble truth, that it's possible for that dukkha to cease by letting go of that same craving and clinging. (coughs) Now, as I think all of you know from your own experience, easy enough to say all of that, much harder to actually do it. Unfortunately for the for us, the Buddha was both a realist and he was deeply compassionate because he didn't just stop at the third normal truth. He didn't just say, in effect, craving's a problem, so cut it out. Just stop. Then you'll be fine. He knew from his own experience that it takes much more than just intellectual understanding to free this heart and mind. So he gave us a fourth noble truth. And in that fourth noble truth, he lays out the path of practice 
that leads to the complete eradication of dukkha. And that path is known as the Noble Eightfold Path. It comprises eight factors, usually translated as right view, right intention or right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi, or unification of mind. Now, it's possible that some of you hearing yet another numbered list within a numbered list that probably comes from others, some other kind of numbered list is either making your head spin or your mind just completely go blank. So if that's true for you, you might just offer yourself a moment of compassion. (coughs) As with all of the talks that we've been giving here, you definitely don't need to remember all the different factors in the lists or work out how they all fit together. Just let the talk sort of wash through you and trust whatever's useful will stick. And if it doesn't feel relevant right now, then let it go. Maybe at a later time it will make more sense. So the noble truths are ways of helping us to live, you could say, in a more healthy, sane way. And actually the Buddha took this way of presenting his understanding from a medical model that was common in the India of his day. And he saw what he was offering as a form of healing. (laughs) Healing not just physical ailments, but you could say our existential dis-ease, disease. So the Four Noble Truths follow that medical model. And the first step was to diagnose the illness and its nature. The second step was to work out what was causing it. The third was to work out a cure for it. And the fourth and the final step was to recommend a treatment to bring about that cure. In other words, to offer a prescription to relieve the dis-ease. So in taking on that medical model, the Buddha was very clear that he wasn't offering philosophical theories about the world or mystical speculation about the nature of reality. He's reported to have said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. So the significance of this uh, healing model is that the Noble Eightfold Path is the prescription that helps us find the end of suffering. And just like a real prescription actual medicine, it only works if we take it. In other words, it only works if we follow it. So I'd like to look a little more closely now at these eight factors of the path. And just to say up front, this is a lifetime of exploration. We have approximately 30 minutes. So I'm just going to be offering a tiny little snapshot of each one for context. And the first thing to say is, I actually appreciate that there are eight factors and not just one or two, because it gives you the sense that this is a very holistic medicine. It's inviting us to look at every aspect of our lives. It's not only about what's happening when we're formally practicing meditation. And I think it's worth emphasizing that, because... In the way these teachings have come to the West, and probably particularly in lay settings, at first there hasn't been quite as much emphasis on the rest of our lives off the cushion. 
And I have a sense that early on, a few decades ago, there was almost a subconscious belief that all you need to do is meditate deep enough, long enough, hard enough, intensely enough, and at some point you'll hit that metaphorical eject button and find yourself on this pink cloud known as Nibbana, and then you'll live happily ever after. Nice idea. (laughs) But there's a sense based on that misunderstanding that even today many people come to meditation with the hope that it's going to change their lives in some way. But they don't always understand that actually the opposite is true too. Most of us need to change our lives in order to be able to meditate in a way that does lead to deep freedom. So like it or not, our meditation practice doesn't just happen in a vacuum. How we live the rest of our lives has a profound impact on what we experience when we're meditating. So in the structure of the Noble Eightfold Path, there are factors that we cultivate specifically in meditation, and there are also factors that we practice in daily life. And no aspect of our life is excluded. So traditionally, the Noble Eightfold Path is often presented in terms of three subsets. The first are the path factors relating to wisdom, panya, and these are right view and right thought or right intention. Then the second subset are the path factors related to our ethical conduct, so the commitment to non-harming, and these are right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then lastly are the factors related to meditation, right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. And we need, sometimes these three subsets are um, presented like three legs of a tripod or three legs of a stool. And we need all three of these aspects to be equally, equally well developed if our practice is going to strengthen and deepen. So of those factors, you probably recognize the last three pretty quickly because we've been emphasizing right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi all through this retreat. What perhaps isn't quite so clear is just how much we've also been deepening those other five path factors. And that's one of the strengths of this so-called path And I say it's a so-called path because I think for most of us, the idea of a path, the image of a path, tends to imply a straight line. And then particularly when we're given a numbered list, it can sound like these are points along the way. So there's supposed to be a sequential progression. We do number one and then we do number two and then we do number three. But actual practice, these individual path factors, they're all interrelated and mutually supportive of each other. Some, in, in some ways, rather than a path, it's more like a field of skillful approaches that we can pick up and cultivate as they're relevant, as they're needed. Or perhaps it's more of a dance than a path. So as we continue this skill of attunement that we've been cultivating all through this retreat, We learn to recognize what path factor is needed when. And we're just naturally drawn to that. 
and then we dance with it for a while. We interact with it, we engage with it, and then we realize maybe at some point another path factor, another partner is needed to continue the momentum. I hope I'm not mixing metaphors too much, but what I'm trying to do is highlight that in spite of the seemingly linear presentation of the path factors, every one of us needs to walk that path for ourselves in our own unique life circumstances. So with that as a framing, I'll just touch into each of the eight factors now. And just, again, we come up against the limitations of English. Particularly, I think, when it comes to the right that's in front of right intention, right view, right thought, and so on. Particularly with some of these terms, the word right can sound a little authoritarian, or even Orwellian, especially when it comes to like right thought. You better think right. Hope you're not committing a thought crime, (laughs) otherwise the thought police are coming to get you. So we need to try to soften that right term sometimes. The term sama that's usually translated as right, it has a few other implications. So it can mean thoroughly or properly or rightly in the right way. And Gil Fransdell talks about right in the sense of like having the right tool for the job. So there's a sense of appropriateness. And we can contemplate, for example, with the first path factor, right view. What's the appropriate view that's going to take us where we want to go? So right view is that initial factor on the path, and it's one of the two wisdom factors. Because unless there's some understanding, one, that we have a problem, namely dukkha, and two, there's the possibility of a way out of it, then we're not going to continue on this journey. So wisdom, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, but there needs to be some spark of wisdom to get us started. And again, in English, the word wisdom can sound a little bit lofty, maybe inaccessible, maybe we don't think of ourselves as being wise. But in the context of these teachings, it is very much a practical, applied understanding. It's not about abstract theories or esoteric concepts. So every one of you here already has quite some significant degree of wisdom in relation to right view, or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have signed up for this two-week retreat. So there's right view just in getting yourselves here and then all through the retreat. We've been strengthening that through very directly knowing that actions have consequences. So to use Will and Elizabeth's analogy, what we pick up has an effect on the chitta. We've been training ourselves to notice that effect and to pick up what is skillful, what's beneficial, what's onward leading. And at the same time, to put down, to release, to lessen what isn't helpful or maybe even harmful. So in all of this, we're learning what conditions support the hindrances to come up 
and what conditions support them to release. And on the other side, what supports the awakening factors and how to deepen and strengthen them. All of these are aspects of right view. Seeing cause and effect, understanding conditionality and using that to shape our hearts and minds in a skillful way, a way that leads to deepening ease and freedom. So with that spark of right view and the deepening of right view, we just naturally start to engage with a second path factor, which is right intention. Right intention, or sometimes translated as right thought. And again, there's a little more subtlety and nuance to this than might at first meet the eye. So the Buddha recognized three distinct mental motivations that are beneficial. And when these are cultivated, they help us to counter unbeneficial intentions. So these three are the intention to renunciation, the intention of goodwill, and the intention of harmlessness. And they counter the unskillful intentions of desire, of ill will, and of harmfulness or cruelty. So each of these is worth a whole talk in and of itself. I'll just pick up a few uh, themes for each of them. So the first one, the intention to renunciation. Another challenging translation into English, because I think for most people when they hear this term renunciation, even back in the Buddha's day, the Buddha recognized the heart doesn't leap up at the idea of renunciation. Not for most people anyway. And I think in English it even more can tend to bring up ideas of, say, deprivation or punishment or puritanism. So we might need to translate it instead as perhaps relinquishment or voluntary simplicity or as Joseph Goldstein refers to it as non-addiction. So we get a sense through non-addiction of its connection to freedom. And in a way what all these terms are inviting us to do is to look at our relationship Look at our relationship to stuff, to material goods, and to comfort. And in both of those domains, here on retreat, I probably don't have to tell you, we're already practicing some relatively serious renunciation, living a very simple life, without the usual distractions and creature comforts and access to sense pleasures for consolation and in some cases without the access to heating. So there's quite a lot that we're strengthening here in terms of that renunciation muscle in a way. And in spite of that, I think all of you here have described sometimes of real happiness and ease and well-being. Perhaps a happiness and ease and well-being that was stronger and more stable than anything that could have come from more ordinary, everyday sense pleasures. And so you might get a little foretaste of what the Buddha often referred to as the bliss of renunciation. The bliss of renunciation. 
Those are not two words that generally go together in our culture. But when we go back into our everyday lives, we might be inspired to perhaps reduce some of the habitual consumption, maybe simplify our lifestyles in ways that are actually more conducive to following this path. And not only that, that relinquishment can help reduce the impact of climate change too. That's a pretty huge topic, so I'll save that for another time. For now, just to come back to the other two aspects of right intention. These are the intention of goodwill and the intention of harmlessness. And again, in the context of this retreat, we've been cultivating them through our Brahma-Vihara practice, practices of metta and of compassion. So the formal practices, but also just in how we've been showing up for each other. I mentioned this a, a few nights ago, how harmoniously you all have been living together. We all have been living together And it's important not to take that for granted because it's not always the case. And I've shared with some of you the experiences I had when I was volunteering in a prison in the U.S. And I was living in a meditation center and then every Sunday I would go into that setting and it was so striking to be in those two very different environments. One where, for the most part, people were doing their best to live ethically and keep the precepts. And in the other, not so much. In fact, some people were actively looking for opportunities to break the precepts. And just the mental climate that that created. Here on retreat, we're living in an environment of relative safety and trust and ease. And again, it may seem invisible, but really letting that in. It's such a powerful support for deepening our practice. And as we understand that more and more fully, there's just a natural movement towards cleaning up our act, as they say. And so now we come into the next three factors, which are right speech, right action, right livelihood. These are the ethical factors. And they're rooted in that fundamental commitment to non-harming. And again, as I just mentioned, on retreat we're powerfully strengthening these. So in the context of this retreat, right speech, most of the time, is expressed as a commitment to noble silence. And as some of you have been sharing, that restraint with our outward speech really makes our inner speech more obvious. And speaking from my own experience, it can be quite shocking in the silence to clearly hear some of the ways that we've trained ourselves to speak to ourselves. I think it's fair to say most of us would be horrified to speak like that to anybody else to speak with that degree of harshness, criticism, judgment, and so on. And yet somehow there's a misunderstanding, another one of those distortions, that it's, it's okay to talk to ourselves like that. 
But as our commitment to ethical conduct refines, we start to listen to the impact of that. And again, in my own practice, it was quite a turning point when I realized if I'm serious about this ethical commitment to the training precepts, serious about following this path, it includes right speech in here as well as out there. It took a bit of effort and a lot of self-compassion, but eventually those hypercritical voices did quieten down. And it's pretty rare these days that they have too much to say. And what a relief that is. So the next path factor is right action. And this is the commitment to not killing living beings, to not taking what's not freely offered, and to not misusing our sexual energy in ways that cause harm. So you probably recognize those from being the first three of the five training precepts that we took together on the first day. And again, it can be easy to take that for granted. But I invite you to just see if you can touch the beauty of that to really appreciate the sense of safety and ease and trust that we're offering to each other through that commitment and that we're also receiving from each other in that same commitment. It's what allows us to live together harmoniously. And then as a further refinement of that right action, the next path factor is right livelihood. And so right livelihood, you could say one expression of it here on retreat is how we show up for our daily mindfulness tasks. So, or the mindfulness act, mindfulness in action, as it's called here at Temuata. I think every one of us has one of those jobs. And in the context of the retreat, it's pretty much the only responsibility that we have. And it can be a microcosm of how we show up for our work in the outside world too. I don't know if you've noticed this in your own practice, but certainly for me, all kinds of different attitudes would show up. Technically, I was just being asked to chop carrots or clean toilets, but the amount of anxiety or fear about doing it wrong or the comparing mind or the perfectionism or at times the opposite, the resentment and the resistance and the half-heartedness and the carelessness, all of that would show up in relation to these simple tasks. And yet reframing it as an exploration of right livelihood, again, it can bring real joy to those simple tasks. And then outside of retreat, right livelihood more broadly, how do we support ourselves? How do we make a living? How do we live in the world? And again, that invitation to deepen the ethical care. So the more care we take with it, the less impact we have on the environment, on the more than human world. So bringing more awareness into the ethical path factors, our daily life starts to come into closer alignment with our deeper values. And there's a sense of integrity and the uprightness that Willer and Eliza are often referred to, that Pali word uju, 
and that uprighting of the heart and mind. It just brings more ease and steadiness. And then we're in much better shape to engage with the meditative factors of the path. Right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. And we've been speaking about these pretty much every day during the retreat. So I won't go into them again now. What I want to highlight is that they're not the end of the path just because they come last. The refined awareness and the clarity and the steadiness of mind that these three factors support feeds right back into right view and right intention. And those in turn support the ethical path factors. And as our our attention to non-harming becomes even more refined, the mind can settle and steady and see even more clearly. And so there's a interrelationship, a feeding back of these factors that strengthens and refines them. And even if you're relatively new to this practice, I'm pretty sure all of you have had some taste of that, how refining ethical understanding supports deeper insight and vice versa. So perhaps you can think of a time earlier on in your own practice. Um, there was a few things you may have done that mm, you had a vague sense weren't that skillful, but, well, you know, everyone does it. It's not that big a deal. Just give yourself a break, relax. And then as the practice continued, you started to hear that rationalizing mind and started to get a clearer sense, actually, that's not so useful. Or if you did engage in it, you really felt the impact, the remorse or the anxiety and so on. And as you got clearer about the effect on the chitta, it strengthened the intention to release that unskillful behavior. And as the more coarse unethical behavior falls away, there's less agitation in the mind, there's more capacity to see clearly, the meditation practice naturally strengthens and deepens. So again, rather than being a nice straight line, these eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, they start to form a kind of an upward spiral. Each factor strengthens, steady, supports the next. They circle around and can build their own momentum carrying us all the way to freedom. And this is the process that all of us have been engaged in over these last almost two weeks. And I hope that you can really take joy in that, celebrate that, appreciate the beauty of the efforts that you're making here. Certainly, uh, the three of us here have been inspired just to see the diligent efforts and to hear the uh, insights and the freedom as you faced into these various challenges and transcended them. So I'd like to close with a reading from the Chaitanya Sutta that some of you may be familiar with, because it just so clearly describes that natural upward momentum that comes as we set up the right conditions, namely the commitment to ethical conduct, 
and in that chain reaction of increasing ease and happiness and joy, leading through increasingly refined clear seeing all the way to Nibbana, which in this passage is named as the further shore. So it's a few paragraphs, so just settle back, uh, relax, and let the words wash over you. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there's no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It's in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, there's no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It's in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there's no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It's in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there's no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It's in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there's no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. It is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure, there's no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there's no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. For a person who knows and sees things as they actually are, there's no need for an act of will. May I feel disenchantment. It is in the nature of things that a person who knows and sees things as they actually are feels disenchantment. For a person who feels disenchantment, there is no need for an act of will. May I grow dispassionate. It is in the nature of things that a person who feels disenchantment grows dispassionate. For a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of release. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and vision of release. In this way, mental qualities lead on to mental qualities. Mental qualities bring mental qualities to their consummation for the sake of going from the near to the further shore.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.